I grew up in a very non-religious family, okay? So we didn't do church at all. We didn't believe in Jesus whatsoever. But weirdly enough, Easter was always a big celebration for us. Every single year, I have these vivid memories of getting really dressed up and going to grandma's house and taking pictures and she would bake ham. Like, I don't know what it was with my grandmother and ham, but she baked ham for like every single holiday. These memories are just burned into my mind. In fact, I think I have a photo of me at one of my very first Easter's. That's little Danny. I peaked at four years old. That was it. It was all downhill from there. I was thinking I was three. That was 1984. Anyway, um, this is me and my sister, and we're celebrating Easter way, way back in the day. Now, in the Sueza household, all of our traditions, at least from my perspective, revolved around eggs. Easter was all about eggs, okay? So we would buy eggs. We would boil eggs. We would dye eggs. We would hide eggs. We would hunt eggs. We would eat eggs. We would find eggs in the yard three months later. You know what I'm saying? Just everything revolved around eggs in Easter time at our household. I I kind of knew like vaguely that it was a religious holiday in some way, shape, or form, but I couldn't have told you anything specific. And for me, like when I thought of Easter, I just thought of eggs. I kind of just assumed Easter was the holiday in which everybody celebrated chickens. It was like, we love chickens. We love what they give us. We love the eggs. I don't know. And I got really confused because I knew it was vague religious, but when we would go to my grandma's house to eat ham, she also made this thing called deviled eggs. And I was like, why are we eating the devil's eggs? I didn't know we were that kind of family. I was so confused. Easter was a lot of fun for me growing up, but it wasn't particularly meaningful. I wonder if that's true for you as well. Like you're aware, kind of generally, that Easter is the story of Jesus rising from the dead, but you're skeptical. Like you, you're like, people don't rise from the dead. So that's weird in the first place. And you kind of have trouble making sense of why Christians think that Easter is such a big deal. Aren't there bigger and better holidays throughout the year? So some of you are in that camp. I know there are others of you and you're like, I have been in Easter services since before I was born. Mama was eight months pregnant and she sat down in a pew and you heard Easter messages before you ever came out and saw anyone. All right. We've got people that are here at Connect Church, and that's them. You know, they're like pregnant and their babies are here in church celebrating their very first Easter. And you would say, after all of that exposure to the message of Easter, it's fine. By this point, I know the story. It's tradition, it's routine, it's kind of lost some of the magic. It's not exactly life changing or anything. No matter which of those groups that you might fall into this morning, I want to help you to understand why Easter is not just the best day of the year, it's actually the best day ever. It is the greatest day in history. Whether you don't know why, or because you've heard why so much that it's lost all its power, what I want to do is I want to point you towards a particular story within the larger crucifixion and resurrection story. So we're going to focus in on a story within a story. And I think this is important because this smaller story tends to get lost in the bigger story of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. This story is important because it illustrates and it encapsulates what we create 
Christians call the good news. If you want to know what the gospel is, if you want to know why we think Easter is such a big deal, this story will help you to understand what Easter is really all about. Now, this story is actually so important that it's recorded in all four versions of the gospels. Not every detail about Jesus' life is told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but when something occurs in all four of the gospels, it's a way of kind of highlighting subtly, this is really important. You don't want to miss this. It was important enough that four independent witnesses decided that it needed to be included in his story. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on Mark's account of Jesus on Good Friday, okay? So the the story that Mark tells, and uh, it begins Passion Week, what we call Passion Week, the final week of the life of Jesus. On Thursday, he has uh, the Last Supper with his disciples, and as soon as they get done with dinner, he's betrayed by Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, and uh, then he's arrested by the, uh, the, the Roman guards, and he's taken to jail, and he's put on trial. So we're going to pick up the story there in Mark chapter number 15, verse number 1. This is what the scripture says. Very early on Good Friday morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. The entire high council met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor. All right, let me give you a little bit of context so you kind of understand what's going on here. About 60 or so years, uh, actually 60 years before Jesus was born, about 90 years before the events of this story transpire, the Romans had invaded the country of Israel, like they did basically everybody else back in the day. They used their military to conquer the Jewish people. They took over and they imposed Roman law in place of Jewish law. So by the time we get to the crucifixion of Jesus, the Jews are not allowed to execute any of their own criminals. They have to turn that responsibility over to the Roman officials. Now, the Jews of his day wanted him executed because they believed he committed blasphemy. So for three years, he had wandered around the Judean countryside. He had taught about God. He had performed miracles, healed people, driven out demons, all these different things. But as time went on, he began to get a lot more explicit about who he was. Jesus started saying things like, if you have seen me, you have seen God. Jewish people are like, wait, 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 wait. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And the word he uses is like one substance, one essence. And the Jews are like, that's blasphemy. You can't make yourself one with God. If you do that, you deserve to die. And so they wanted him executed. It was against their religious law and the penalty was death. The problem was the Romans didn't give a rip if somebody committed blasphemy against the Jewish God. They're like, that's your business. That's your God. We don't even believe in him. So we're not going to execute Jesus or anybody else for blasphemy. So the leaders of his day knew that they couldn't get him executed for what they wanted. Instead, they had to trump up some charges. They had to invent some fake um, things to accuse him of that would actually qualify him for punishment under the Roman system. So what they did is they said, this Jesus guy, he has set himself up and declared himself to be the king of the Jews. Now, Jesus actually never used that title of himself. And they said, he wants to overthrow the Roman Empire. He has set himself up as another king, another Caesar. Hey, Rome, y'all might want to pay attention to him and maybe do something before he causes a riot and a civil war. So in verse number one, we read that they're getting together and they're trying to figure out what are the charges? What are we going to accuse him of so that the Romans will actually put him to death? Verse number two, Pilate, the governor, asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? 
And Jesus replied, hey, you said that. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes. And Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges that they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing much to Pilate's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. All right, we're going to pause right here because this is weird. We don't do this in Canada. It's not like, hey, Easter weekend, we're going to open a single jail cell and somebody gets to go free. This is strange, but it actually makes sense if you think about it in context. Remember, the Romans were an occupying military force, okay? So underneath all of this like law and order that they were imposing, there was a lot of seething hatred. The Jews didn't want the Romans around. They were trying to constantly like figure out how we can overthrow the government, we can reestablish our own nation and things like that. So in order to pacify the crowds, Pilate, the governor, decided, okay, I'm going to give them a little bit of kindness. So he decided that during the Passover celebrations, he would release one prisoner. Now look, in these days, you could be arrested for like anything. You look at a soldier weird and he's like off to jail with you, okay? So this was a way for Pilate to say, guys, see, we're not so bad. Like, it's not so bad to be a Roman colony. Just let us do us. You guys be chill. Go with the flow. And look, we'll even give you kind of these micro doses of kindness, all right? That's what he's doing here. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've never heard this story before. You have no clue what's coming next. You think, oh, well, they're going to release a prisoner. And we know that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. Like he's just wandered around the countryside loving people and healing them and talking about God and, you know, all those different things. So Jesus doesn't deserve to be executed. This is it. God is going to intervene in this moment and he's going to save Jesus. He is going to make sure that Jesus gets justice. Not so fast. Because we go on to read here in verse number seven. One of the other prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. So the crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this, quote, king of the Jews, Pilate asked? For he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. Why? Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder. Crucify him. Crucify him. So the scripture says to pacify the crowd. Not because Jesus deserved it. Not because Pilate had no other options. But in order to pacify the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas, and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Now, if you look at the Gospels as the, uh, the early disciples trying to tell us what happened, that's their goal, to re- report historical facts to us, okay? Then Jesus being crucified and Barabbas being released, this becomes one more tragic detail in Christ's final moments. Like, man, that's unfortunate. He died. He shouldn't have died. He's kind of a martyr. He got caught up in this very violent empire. And man, it's, it's just unfortunate. But hear me now. The disciples are not only interested in telling us what happened. They want to help us understand why it happened. Because if you don't understand why it happened, then nothing is really going to make sense at all. 
And so what happens when you dig into the details on this story, when you really dive into every little bit of this, you know what you discover? You discover that this is not just a story about them. Like them, some foreign people in a foreign land at a foreign time in history that has no relation or bearing on you. In fact, the deeper you go on this story with Barabbas, the more you realize this is actually a story of us. This is my story. This is your story. Barabbas' story is actually the story of every single person that has ever lived. Let me tell you what I mean. We, we started by telling you that this guy's name, who was released in the place of Jesus, we told you that his name is Barabbas, right? Now, to my ears, that sounds like a perfectly normal, ancient, Middle Eastern name, right? It's like Barabbas. It's not like he was named Jeff or something like that. It was just like, yeah, that seems to fit in the time and place, right? But here's the deal. Barabbas is not his first name. Barabbas is his last name. If we were to go to the Gospel of Matthew, we discover there that his first name was a form of the name Joshua. So Joshua Barabbas. Barabbas is his last name. Barabbas itself is an Aramaic word that is made by combining two separate words together, okay? It's bar and a ba, bar and a ba, barabba, barabba, barabbas, okay? You take these two words, you put them together, and you get this guy's last name in Aramaic. Now, if you're a hardcore Bible nerd, and there are a couple in our church, you look at those two words and you already see why this is fascinating. But if you're here this morning and you're more of a real housewives of Toronto than you are book of Deuteronomy kind of person, I want to hook you up. I want to help, okay? Because I want you to see how interesting this really is. Okay. These two words separately put together form this man's name. What does the word bar mean? Bar is an Aramaic word that simply means the son of, the son of, Okay? We can see some other examples of this in scripture. Oftentimes, the apostle who was known as Simon Peter is also called Simon Bar-Jonah, right? Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Jonah was his father's name. Uh, other languages have similar versions of this. Like if we think of Osama bin Laden, probably didn't expect me to name check him on Easter, but here we are. Osama, son of, bin, bar, they're the same thing. So bar means the son of. And Abba means the Swedish supergroup that gave us that musical masterpiece, <laughs> dancing. No, 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 different Abba. Abba, we pronounce this Abba. Abba is the same word that Jesus taught us to use when we pray. It means father. It means dad. It means father. So Barabbas when we put those two words together to get his last name, or maybe it's his nickname, we don't know for sure. What we have is Joshua, the son of his father. Joshua, the son of his or the father. So check this now. This is really interesting, okay, for a couple of different reasons. First, this is like the most generic name you could imagine in the history of naming, okay? He's called the son of his father. That's true of every one of us. We're all the son of our fathers, right? Like even if daddy didn't stick around after we were born, we're still the sons and daughters of our father. This is a very generic and weird kind of name. It's essentially the equivalent of calling somebody human. It's true of everyone. No matter where they're from, what they look like, what any of that stuff, right? 
It's just true of all of us. I actually did some double checking. In the last three years in the province of Alberta, there has not been a single baby that has been born who was named human. There's none. It's such a generic name that nobody would even consider it, okay? And yet here Barabbas is walking around with the Aramaic equivalent. He is the son of his father. Now, the second reason that this name is so fascinating is because somebody else in this story is also called the son of his father, isn't it? Who, who else in this story carries that same descriptor? Jesus. So catch this now. This is so fascinating, you guys. We have two men, both of whom are standing before the same governor on the same day. They've been accused of the exact same crime, treason and sedition against the Caesar of the Roman Empire. They have the same description applied to them. They're both Barabbas in a sense. They're both the son of the father. It gets even crazier because I told you a moment ago, that uh, Barabbas' first name was Joshua, right? You remember that? Now, what you might not know is Joshua is simply the Hebrew form of the Greek name Jesus. So not only do they carry the same last name, they have the same first name. Joshua was just as common back then as it is now. So we've got these two guys, and there are all of these really fascinating connections and parallels. And if you're reading closely, you're like, there's too many of them for that to be a coincidence, right? And you're right. When you start to see this many details and this much parallelism, it's a way that the gospel authors are trying to, to highlight something and say, don't miss this. This is actually key to understanding what's even happening here. We have two men, both of them who are called the son of the father. One of them is completely innocent and not deserving of the punishment that he's about to receive. And then we have another guy who's completely guilty and he deserves whatever the Roman empire might want to throw at them. So, I think all of these fascinating connections and details between these two men, they actually tell us that when we read the story, we're intended to identify with Barabbas and not Jesus. When we read this story, naturally, everybody does this. In every book you've read, you read Harry Potter, you put yourself in, you're like, I'm a Hermione, I'm a Slytherin, whatever, okay? We do this. That's okay. That's like nature. That's how it works, Okay human nature. So here's the deal. When I put myself in the story, when I imagine myself, boy, if I was in that situation, who would I be like? Well, I don't want to be the violent thug who clearly murdered somebody and now is about to die. No, I want to be the good guy, Jesus. I want to be the one who's innocent. I identify with the guy who did no wrong. I want to be with the hero of this particular story. And yet the deeper we dig, on these particular details, the more obvious it becomes, we are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. So many of the things that were true of Barabbas are actually true of every single one of us as well. Consider the fact that Barabbas was guilty. Barabbas was guilty. He was guilty of breaking the Roman law. He had broken the law. He had harmed other people. He was rightfully charged 
for his wrongdoing. Now, notice there's no hint in the stories whatsoever that Barabbas was falsely charged, right? There's like the, the gospel writers go out of their way to communicate to us Jesus did not deserve what he was facing. He never did anything wrong. He didn't break any of the religious laws. He didn't break any of uh, the Roman laws. But when it comes to Barabbas, they're like, yep, he was a rebel leader and he caused a riot and somebody died as a result of his actions and choices. It's just factual. He was Barabbas. He was a lawbreaker who deserved to answer for his crimes. He was guilty. Now, the scripture says that like Barabbas, we are all guilty too. Hopefully not of murder, but we do say everyone's welcome here at Connect. So, okay, I'm glad you're here regardless of what your week has been like, okay? No, no. When I say the scripture says that we're all guilty, I'm thinking of verses like 1 John chapter number 3, verse 4, which says this, everyone who sins is breaking God's law for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And I'm thinking of James chapter number two, verse 10, which says the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. See, in short, like what the scripture has to say anyway, is that God created humanity and he gave us boundaries to live within. And the boundaries that he's given us, they're not to like kill our fun. It's not like God is not passing the vibe check here. It's not about that. He's not the cosmic police. God is actually designing what he knows will be best for the flourishing of all of humanity throughout time and space. That's the goal. So he puts these boundaries in place, but you know as well as I do, we have a tendency to get as close as we can. And then either like unconsciously or accidentally, or just because we feel like we want to that day, we step over the boundary. We transgress. We break the law that God has, has uh, set in place. That is, we are all guilty. We are all lawbreakers, just like Barabbas was. Now, I know some of you are thinking to yourselves right now, bro, you do not know me, okay? So don't you stand up there wagging your American finger at me, telling me that, uh, you know, I'm a bad person or whatever. I can prove to you, Dan, that I am a good person. I actually return my cart to the corral in the Walmart parking lot. That's how good a person I am. And you know what? Bless you for that, because people who leave their cart in the middle of the parking lot to ding up my ride, I can't stand them. So good for you. You probably are a good person, but... I can actually prove to you without using the Bible that you are just as guilty of breaking the law as anybody else. See, every person on the planet lives according to some moral code that they have. We have a law within us that tells us what is right and what is wrong, what we as people should do and what people should not do. And in the end, it doesn't even matter for our thought exercise right now where this code comes from. So some of us take our code from the Bible. Some say, no, the, the code that we should live by is created by society and we codify it as laws. Others say, no, families tend to come up with that. We pass on to our kids and grandkids and stuff what is right, what's wrong, what's valuable, all that sort of stuff. And then there are some people that say, I just think every person determines for themselves what, co what code or what law it is that they're going to live according to. I don't care where the law comes from. Have you ever noticed we're really bad at staying inside of whatever boundaries we end up drawing? 
If you say, yeah, I'm one of those people that I just think like every person kind of decides for themselves what's right, what's wrong. Okay, so you might say as a result of that, I just believe that everybody should be kind to everyone else. Kindness is like a basic boundary that people should stay within. And I would say yes and amen. I absolutely agree with you. But let me ask you, has there ever been a time in life where you've been unkind to someone else? Of course, we all have. We've broken the law that we came up with. It doesn't matter where the law comes from. We all believe there's a standard and we don't quite meet that standard. Am I right? If you say, I believe it's wrong for people to steal. Like if somebody works hard and they get a paycheck and they get a a nice pickup truck, they shouldn't have to worry about parking it on the street and in the middle of the night, somebody coming by with a sawzall and taking off the catalytic converter. That sucks. It's wrong. You're right. Okay. Maybe you haven't taken somebody's truck part, but have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? Who hasn't? Okay, so you see what this proves. Independent of the scripture, we set a code, a law that we believe humanity should live by, and we step across those boundaries every single day. The plain fact is we're lawbreakers. We're guilty just like Barabbas was guilty. Okay, not only was Barabbas guilty, but he was also chained. He was literally bound with like handcuffs and chains because of his guilt. He stood before Pilate that day. He was shackled and he was unable to go free. And like Barabbas, the scripture says that each one of us is spiritually held prisoner, captive by the power of sin that's at work in us. If you look at John chapter number eight, verse 24, the Bible says, whoever sins is a prisoner. A more harsh word uh, to translate that is slave. Whoever sins is a prisoner or a slave to sin. Now, again, I know that's kind of offensive. So let me show you that you actually don't need the Bible in order to recognize that this is true. Have you ever had a habit that you really wanted to kick, but try as hard as you might, you were never able to break free? Then you know what it's like to be chained as a prisoner. You know what that's like. I do a fair bit of marital counseling, like as a pastor, you know, I mean, like sometimes couples struggle and they'll come to me and say, hey, do you have any wisdom or anything like that? And we'll start talking to them about what their situation is like. And I just, I can't tell you how often I'll hear a couple say, we know our communication patterns are broken, but we can't seem to find a better way to talk to one another. They know what it's like to be chained as a prisoner to behaviors that they wish they could be free from but they can't seem to find on their own. If I had a loony for every time I heard some guy say, I know I'm not the husband I need to be. I try so hard, you know, and I promise I'm going to do better and I do better for like two days. And then after two days, I'm right back to the old me. Why can't I just become the guy that I know I should be? He knows what it's like to be chained, to be bound, to be held captive. Guilt and chains. They were true of Barabbas. And look, you don't even need the Bible to show you that it's true of me and you, everybody else that lives on the planet. Barabbas stands there guilty, chained, and condemned. Like, can you imagine when Barabbas woke up that morning? He was not thinking to himself, man, this is going to be a good Friday. (laughs) He knew it was not going to be a good Friday. He knew what was awaiting him, and it was nothing good. He knew that he was about to be tried, 
found guilty, beaten, and then executed. There was nothing good ahead of him. He had no hope, nothing but darkness. He was literally staring death in the face. He figured, this is it. It's all over for me. He was condemned to die. Now, you are probably not condemned to die today, okay? Thank God. But can we just be real? We're all living under a death sentence of sorts. Like we're all going to die. Barabbas had to die. We're going to die. I pray that that is many years in the future. But look, it's coming. It's coming for all of us. We have the same sentence that Barabbas does. We live under that same kind of condemnation that one day the lights are going to go out. And we all know what it's like to experience that sense of hopelessness and helplessness and to feel like we're chained and bound and the ax is eventually going to fall. We don't know when it's exactly coming, but we have this deep anxiety inside of us that when we get to the end, we're going to look back and we're going to say, none of it mattered. My life didn't leave a legacy. I've got tons of regrets. There are a lot of things that I wish I could do differently. Like Barabbas, we are all chained, guilty, and condemned. I like the way the Apostle Paul puts this. Romans chapter number seven, verses 21 through 25. I don't know if you've ever read this passage before, but I'll tell you, if there was like a section of verses that really described Dan Suiza, well, this is it, okay? He says this, I have discovered this principle in life, that what I, when I want to do what is right, inevitably, I do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. I really do. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave, a prisoner to the sin that is still within me. How miserable I am. And then Paul goes on to ask what I believe is maybe the most important question that any of us could ever have ask in a moment of honesty. He says this, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Who's going to set me free? Paul knew he was a prisoner. He knew he was guilty. He knew he was condemned. He knew he was not able to live the life that he wanted to and that he should. And so in this question, he says, somebody's got to intervene. Somebody's got to step in. Somebody's got to release me. Somebody's got to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul concludes that he needs to be set free and the only one who's capable of doing it is Jesus himself. Who will set us free from this life dominated by sin and death? Have you ever asked a version of that question to yourself? Probably not, but I bet you've asked similar questions using different words. Have you ever asked, why do I keep doing things that I know I shouldn't? I don't want to, but I do. It's because we are prisoners that needs somebody to intervene and set us free. Have you ever asked yourself, why don't I love myself the way that I know I should? It's because we're all prisoners who need somebody to intervene in our circumstances and to set us free. Have you ever asked the general question, why is the world so dark and violent? It's because we're all prisoners that need somebody to intervene and to set us free. The person who set Paul free is the same person that sets Barabbas free the same person that set me free, and he wants to set you free as well today. The hero of Easter is Jesus. The message of Easter is that despite our sin, 
Despite our inability, we have been set free by Jesus. Think about this for just a moment. Barabbas started Easter weekend guilty, chained, and condemned. He finished Easter weekend alive, forgiven, and free. How good is that, you guys? And guess what? We are Barabbas. I started Good Friday guilty, condemned, and chained. And I finished Friday alive, forgiven, and free because of the work of Jesus on my behalf. Jesus is the one who's responsible for setting me free. Jesus will be the one who's responsible for setting you free as well. Jesus took Barabbas' guilt. He took his chains. He took his condemnation. He even took his cross. Let me give you another cool little detail about this particular passage. Okay, so if you're familiar with the story, you know that when Jesus is put on the cross, he's crucified in between two other people. There are three people on crosses that day, right? And we are often told that the two people that were crucified on either side of Jesus were crucified because they were thieves, right? It's not true. There's actually a very specific word for a thief in Greek. The word is actually klepto, from which we get kleptomaniac. That's, that's where we get it. It's from the Greek language. Now, when the gospel writers are talking about the men who are on either side of Jesus hanging on their own crosses, he doesn't call them kleptos. Instead, he calls them revolutionaries. It's the exact same word that's used to describe Barabbas a little bit earlier in the story. So catch this. This is so interesting. On this day, there are three men that are scheduled to die. The ones who were supposed to be hanging on the cross by the end of Good Friday are Barabbas and his two henchmen. But Jesus stepped in and he literally took Barabbas's chains. He took Barabbas's guilt. He took Barabbas's condemnation. He allowed himself to be nailed to Barabbas's cross so that Barabbas could be set free. Jesus didn't do it because he got caught up and became the victim of a violent mob. He didn't do it because he got chewed up by the machinery of an evil empire. No, he did it willingly. He did it and so that he could take what we deserved and that we could have what he deserved. It's an exchange. And not only did he do it for Barabbas, but he did it for every single son and daughter of the father who would ever live, including me and you. You guys, Easter is the best day ever because it's the day the guilty were forgiven. It's the day the condemned were set free. It's the day that death was defeated. It's the day that we were given eternal and overflowing life through Jesus. Man, that's why I get hyped about Easter. Bunnies are cool. I mean, they're cute. I'm going to go pet them before we get done. But I didn't get out of bed this morning for bunnies. I got up. Because Jesus got up out of that grave. All right. There's one more, as I close, one more kind of interesting fact that I want to give you about Barabbas. And I promise this will be short. We'll wrap it up. This is the only place in the Bible that Barabbas is mentioned. Like at this moment in the crucifixion story. We never hear what happens to this guy after he is dramatically pardoned and set free on Good Friday. That drives me crazy. I'm like, but what became of this guy? Like, what happened? I want to know how he went on and lived out the rest of his days. I actually think it's intentional that the scriptures don't tell us what happened. Because what it forces us to do 
I said, we're, we put ourselves in the story and we're supposed to identify with Barabbas without telling us what happened the next day and every day thereafter. It forces us to put ourselves in that same spot and say, now, what am I going to do? If I've been set free as fully and wonderfully as Barabbas has, what will I do tomorrow and next week and in the years to come? Seems to me Barabbas had three choices. After Jesus intervened in his situation, after Jesus died in his place, there are one of three things that he could have done as a response. And it's the same three things that you and I will have to choose today when we walk out of this auditorium. Firstly, Barabbas could have returned to his old way of life. It could have been that Pilate called him up and said, bro, you dodged a bullet today. That guy's going to die and you get to go free. And Barabbas could have been like, sweet, I'm out. And he could have ran back to his old gang and continued mobbing and robbing until he got arrested and tried and crucified for good. We don't know what happened to him. It is entirely possible that he just went back to what he always knew. What a tragedy it would be to have such an amazing, dramatic, life-changing encounter with Jesus in which you have been totally and completely pardoned and set free, and then to turn around and go back to the life you've always been living, that's a waste. Please don't make that same mistake today. What Jesus did for Barabbas, he's done for every single one of us. So don't return to the death that you used to live in. Don't return to the rebellion that you used to walk in. Instead, choose to live differently because somebody has intervened in your situation and they have set you free. What Jesus did for Barabbas, he does for everybody. But if you don't accept it, then you will miss it. Barabbas could have returned to his old way of life. He could have refused his release. Like theoretically, uh, Pilate could have said, bro, you dodged a cross today. Guess what? You get to go free. And Barabbas could have said, you know what? That guy doesn't deserve to die. I do. Like I, I actually am a murderer. I am, I, I am a revolutionary. I deserve these chains. And uh, you know what? Pilate, follow through. I want you to nail me to the cross just like we had planned on doing. That is what I deserve. Could have done that. Now, that sounds silly, right? Who would ever choose to do something like that? And yet, I know an awful lot of people who hear that they have been set free fully and completely by the work of Jesus on the cross, and yet they stand still holding onto their chains, saying, no, this is what I deserve. Based on what I've done, based on the life I've lived, I know I need to atone. I know I need to pay. You don't know how bad my choices were. And I feel a lot of guilt still. And so I'm going to hold on and I'm going to stay here and I'm going to say, God, if anybody deserves to be punished, it's me. Why would you carry that attitude? Why would you hold on to chains that Jesus has already unlocked? Why would you ask for punishment that Jesus has already taken? You do not have to be nailed to the cross. You do not have to pay for your sins. Somebody has intervened and paid the penalty and set you free so that you could walk in freedom from this day forward. Tomorrow, when you're like back at work and you start to feel those feelings of condemnation and guilt and regret and slavery and prisonership, you should remind yourself, no, I've been set free from that. That is not true of me anymore. Jesus died so that I didn't have to agree with those particular feelings. Okay, he could have gone back to his old way of life. He could have stayed there and demanded his punishment. Or he could have lived the rest of his days 
in light of the gift he had been given. He could have made all the change. He could have run out of there telling everybody he knew about this Jesus who died in his place. He could have woke up every single morning saying, I do not deserve this day, but thank you, God, for giving it to me. I was supposed to be dead, and now I'm alive. I was supposed to live in prison for the rest of my days, but I have been set free. I am not who I was because of what he did. I am going to choose to praise him for the rest of my life. I'm going to learn about him. I'm going to grow closer to him. I'm going to preach about him. I'm going to get involved in his community. I'm going to do anything I can to serve the world in his name because what he did for me changed everything. My hope for you is that you would hear what Jesus has done on your behalf. And you would realize what I said on Good Friday if you were here, it is already finished. It's done. There's no more work for Jesus left to do. And there's no more work for you either except to say yes. Except to accept and embrace the free gift that you've been given through Jesus' death and resurrection. So I'm going to invite everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. And if you just say, yep, that's me. I want to, I want to be forgiven. I want a fresh start. I know I need to be set free and I am ready for it today. I want you to hear the words of John chapter number one, verse 12. The scripture tells us that to as many as received him, to as many who were willing to say yes, to as many who were willing to embrace him, Jesus gave them the right to be the sons and the daughters of God. And so if you're asking for freedom today from Jesus, you might pray this prayer just in your heart between you and God. Jesus, today I accept you as my Savior. Thank you for setting me free. Thank you for taking my guilt and condemnation. And God, I pray that from this day forward, I would live a life that's worthy of the gift that you've made on my behalf. In your name I pray, amen. Guys, if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, it's like the best day ever. Not just like historically, not just theologically, but personally, this Easter becomes the best day ever. My wife Amber will be up in just a moment to tell you how we can help in your faith journey. That's why we exist as a church, so that people like you who are discovering God's love, maybe even for the very first time, we can help you learn what it means to live that out every single day. But for everyone, whether this is your first Easter in church ever, and actually in the first service, somebody's like, yeah, I've never come to church on Easter before. Whether that's you, or you've been here since you was a little baby, May you know how wonderful and powerful Resurrection Sunday really is. Jesus bought our freedom. Now let's go live in it.